media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, we're going to continue on. This morning, looking at uh, verses 7 and following there, as Christ sends his disciples out. And I can only imagine that uh, uh, he felt like a lot of parents do when they send their kids out into the world. That it's one of those things, there's a part of you that is excited because you know that that's a part of maturity. You know that's part of kind of this cycle that goes on. That you have these children in your home and you can be influenced and show them uh, over the years that they are growing up what it means to do this and do that. And yet there's this time, whether it's the time that they go off to college, where it's the time whether they become husband and wife with somebody and they go make their own home. There's that time when they leave. And I think that in every parent, there's both that mix of excitement, but also wondering, have we done enough? Do they know enough? How are they going to survive? And we see a little bit of that today in the scripture as Jesus up to this point has uh, really been kind of, he's been the teacher. He's been the one doing the miracles. And yet he transfers some of the ministry over to the disciples. See, part of the maturity of life is going from a place of watching to a place of doing. From a place of observation to a place of participation. From watching somebody ride a bike to actually getting on and pedaling yourself. And even if it means you fall down and scrape your knees, that you actually go to a place of riding a bike. Uh, Same way of cooking a meal, from watching somebody prepare a meal for you and maybe how mom would cook this or dad would cook that, going to a place where you have to fend for yourself, you have to cook for yourself. Uh, Maybe even being supported by someone who has a job and then actually getting a job to go out and support yourself. This novel idea that you're going to grow up and you're going to have some kind of ability to kind of go on with life. We call that maturity. Some people do it better than others. And this morning, there's this natural process of maturity of being going from an observation point of view to a participation point of view that we see in the ministry of Christ. And just like you and I would have that marker in our life, our first job. Do you remember your first job? I was 12 years old when I got my first real job. That is that you got a check with your name on it. And I thought that was pretty incredible, especially for a 12-year-old. Or when you have that first house or that first apartment, I can remember Carly's, and, and as, when we got married, our first apartment together. It was a basement apartment, and we thought it was so cool that even though it was in a basement, it had a fireplace, and we just thought we were the coolest people ever. But those markers in our lives that we go back and say, what a point of maturity. But with each point of maturity kind of came, you know, this factor. It was a good thing, and but along with that uh, uh, basement apartment came every month, you had to write a rent check. And so you were paying for it. So this maturity leads to responsibility. And that's what we begin to see here. Up to this point, when we look at Mark's gospel and the other gospels, Matthew and Luke, that tell of this particular event, we begin to see that Christ begins to extend his ministry through his disciples. And when we begin to see that, we see that he's really enacting what he had said before. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 14, this is what Jesus said. So this shows that he has a plan, and now he's about to enact this plan. Mark three fourteen, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, 
And he's going to name two things. Look what he says. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, way before Mark chapter 6, he calls the disciples and he goes, here's my intention for these disciples. I, I want them to learn of me. I want them to be with me. And then I will send them out to preach. I want them to do ministry. It's a lot like what we do when we're raising children in our home. We have this intention that they're going to be with us, learn of us, and then one day we send them out. And now up to this point, they have focused on being with Jesus. They've watched him uh, teach. They've watched him uh, deal with various types of people, those people that were for the ministry, those people that were against the ministry. They've seen him under applause and under attack. They've seen him preach and teach. They've seen him heal and forgive. They've seen miracles happen. But when we get to Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we see a change in all this. Jesus goes, you will go out and you'll be doing the teaching and the preaching and and you're going to be the one that's going to do miraculous things. And you're going to be the one carrying the message of repentance and the good news of the gospel. And so he begins to expand the ministry, not because Jesus is inefficient in doing it, but because it was always his intention. Now, I want you to understand that last part. This is not a change in strategy. Again, look what he said three chapters before. This was always his intention. Learn of me, and then I will send you out. This isn't because Jesus is tired. This isn't because he's not getting enough applause or enough approval. It's not because he goes, you know, I just don't want to work seven days a week anymore. This isn't because of anything that's about Jesus. Jesus is sufficient to carry on his own ministry. It's by his grace and by his intention and by his strategy that he says, no, I will involve you. Now, now let me ask you a question. (laughs) Even at this point, before getting to the scripture, who can do it better, Jesus or the disciples? One of the hardest parts of parenting is learning when to transition responsibility over to your children, knowing that they're not going to do it like you would do it. Wasn't that, it was, for you that have already done that, it wasn't that a hard thing? And yet you knew that it was kind of part of the factor, that you know, okay, man, that's not how I would have done it, but they did it. For you that are still in that parenting stage, it will be a real challenge because there's a part of you that says, okay, I really want it done right, but I really want them to learn to do it. I can only imagine... Jesus and all of his humanity going, these guys are going to stumble and fall. <laughs> They're nowhere near ready to really carry on this ministry. And yet he sends them out. Mark three fourteen again. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And they've done that. This is probably a year and a half, maybe even two years into the ministry of Christ. But it's probably about the halfway point at least. And now he sends them out to preach. This is not plan B. This is his design. And look what he tells them to do. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 12. We'll read all the way through and then we'll go back and kind of, kind of come back and make comments and learn some observations uh, from there. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. 
And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is the sending out. This was God's intention. And it was part of that intention to grow them, not because Jesus was insufficient in the task. The time had come for them to leave the proverbial nest. Jesus has been feeding them, nourishing them, teaching them the, the, the word. But now like baby birds, they're kind of, they like the safety of the nest, but they have to try their own wings. They go from a place of observation to participation. But look how intentionally they are sent out. I want to show you four things, or we can observe four things in this passage of the design of the ministry. The first thing it says that they were sent out two by two. Now, why is that? Well, number one is just practical. There's a safety factor in there. There's a, uh, sometimes, you know, when we think about marriage and why God has given us the, the beautiful, uh, uh, miracle of marriage, uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the couples was talking about, hey, when I'm down, the other one's up. And when I get up, the other one's, you know, that it just kind of works out. It works out that we have two. And when we go back to the Old Testament, we actually see that in some of the wisdom chapters of the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Jesus, as, as spiritual as all this is, he's very practical. He's got 12 disciples, and he goes, I'm going to send you out two by two. Also, there's probably some reference there. There's probably some inference and dependence upon the Old Testament that says, okay, for a witness to be heard, you have to have two witnesses. Just one really didn't count in a matter of court or something like that. So there's probably a lot of different reasons that we could make biblically of why he sent them out two by two. But I don't want us to miss there just the practical nature of it. But then we go on and we begin to see that they're sent out not only in this practical way, but with authority. They're given the same authority that Jesus had. And they're going to do the same things that Jesus did. Please understand, this is much more in the spirit of duplication than it is innovation. The assignment of the modern day church, the New Testament church, Is it for us to be a duplication of the ministry of Jesus? Or for us to kind of say, well, you know, these are just really different times, and so we need to be innovators. Now, I'm not about, I'm not saying that we shouldn't innovate and that we shouldn't try to be as current or, you know, understand our culture or anything. But, folks, we've been called into a ministry of duplication instead of really innovation. We're just supposed to go out there and love people like Jesus loved people. Uh, actually, you know, speak sternly and uh, about certain things and just as Jesus did. And, and we're going to see that he does in this passage. The ministry of the gospel today, the kingdom of God, is not upon us to be the slickest in town. And yet we live in a culture where there's a really a lot of emphasis about how slick you can be. How relevant can you be to the world? And sometimes I struggle with that because there's a part of it that is very wise. We are to be relevant. At the same time, Jesus, when he calls them in to ministry here, is a ministry of duplication, not of innovation. He doesn't say, okay, go out there and try to figure out how to do ministry. He basically goes out and says, okay, I've been a model for you. You learned of me. Now go 
and, and do what I did. This is so relieving for a pastor. This is so relieving, I hope, for a modern-day Christian. Do you have to be innovative and, and, and go out there and create a whole new model? Is that upon your shoulders? Again, let's be relevant to our culture. Let's be up with the times as much as we can. But the message of the gospel and the means of the gospel has not changed in 2,000 years. And I would make the argument that it hasn't changed in 6,000 years. That God has always said, this is what you proclaim. That he is holy, glorious God. That we have fallen from that in our sin and our rebellion. And yet he has given us a way of redemption. This is the gospel. And this is our story. And we may do that in maybe new and relevant ways. I certainly, you know, that, that old, those old commercials, this is not your daddy's Buick. This is not your grandfather's so-and-so. And some people say, well, this is not your grandfather's church. And, and I understand that. I, I really get that. But then there's a way. I, I hope it's grandfather's gospel. <laughs> I, only, I really hope that, you know, that we can go back to, to the gospel that's been there all the time, that we're, we're just duplicating the, the, the model that Christ set forth. Well, they're sent out two by two. They're sent out with the authority, the authority to do what Jesus was doing. And they're sent out without provisions. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. And he charged them to take nothing from their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Did you ever wonder why not two tunics? It was like an, an, uh, it could be the inner and the outer tunic, or it could be an extra tunic. In other words, go with the clothes on your back. Now, why would Jesus do that? See, just being kind of mean, you know, don't take a suitcase, don't take clothes for tomorrow. No, he's trying to get them to trust him. It's, it's, it's just as important to see what they were asked to do without as what they were to, to do with. He isn't saying, okay, go out there and try to be like MacGyver, if you remember that from an old television. You've got to go out there and live off the land. This isn't something where you've got to go out there and kind of figure out how you can exist like you're a member of Survivor or some TV show like that, and you just kind of have to make do. No, he says, I, I want you to go out, and, and I want you to have these things, but only these things, because I want you to trust in me. It's amazing how what Jesus tells them there really parallels back to Exodus. Remember when uh, God called the Israelites to, to leave the captivity of Egypt, and he called them out, and there had been all these different plagues, and finally the last plague, and there was the Passover. And that night they were to prepare. They were to be ready for the Passover. This death angel was going to come. But if they had put the blood of the lamb above their doorpost, the, the, this angel would pass over them. But when we go back to Exodus twelve eleven, look at the similarity of the words that God told the Israelites to what Jesus told the disciples. Exodus twelve eleven. In this manner you shall eat it. He's talking about the Passover meal there. With your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. Eat it quickly. It is the Lord's Passover. There's a sense of urgency and there's this sense of dependency. I mean, if you think that you're going to go out there, and they have no idea that they're going to be out in the desert for 40 years because of their own rebellion, their own lack of understanding and trusting God. God is trying to get them to trust him. And yet he puts them out there with seemingly just the shirt on their back. In a way, is that a healthy place to be as you walk the Christian life? 
in, in a proverbial sense. Have you ever noticed that the more provision that you have in your life, and I'm just talking about material things, material wealth or something like that, but the more things that we kind of have as safety nets around us, the less that we really have a soul dependency on Jesus Christ. I've noticed in my life that, okay, well, if this doesn't work, then I can fall back and fall back on this. And in one way, Jesus really doesn't want us to have a fallback. He wants to be the only fallback that we have. That if somehow we fall off the bike, if we fall off this, that somehow we fall down, that he's the only one that can catch us and he's the only one that can put us aright again. And he's trying to instill that into the to the disciples. And I'm sure some were better learners than others. I'm sure Peter's going, okay, guys, just watch me and follow me. And Jesus goes, uh, Peter, <laughs> why don't they just watch me and follow me? And then you probably had other disciples that were very much taking notes. You know, we have those people that want to make sure that they get everything right. Twelve different guys, twelve different personalities, but called to this task of going to tell the world this great news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in the fourth, uh, the fourth part of this in verses 10 and 11. They're sent out with a very clear mission. Verse 10 and 11. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. These are actually much more stern words than we would understand in our culture. We see that there's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a sternness there, but I don't know that we really get the weight of it. Uh, these are really words of indictment against the Jewish people. Because at this point, he's sending them out first and foremost to the Jewish people. This is not a sending out to the Gentiles. This is not a sending out to other people. Now, how do we know that, Bobby? I don't see that in there. Well, we look at the parallel stories in the other Gospels. And Matthew chapter 10 tells this same story. But listen what Matthew adds that Mark didn't put in there. That gives us a little bit more clarity, just like Luke writes of it, and he gives us a little bit more clarity. Matthew wrote, uh, Matthew 10, 5 and 6, These twelve sent, uh, Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to where? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those are really hard words. And really, really hard words in that day and time when the Pharisees would have taken great offense. Most Jewish people would have taken great offense because they really did kind of think that, uh, to borrow a term from our day, they were grandfathered in. Hey, we're the people of God. I was flying back from Israel and uh, with some guys, and uh, there was a lot of Jewish uh, priests, and there was a lot of ascetic uh, Jews on there, and and uh, we were told to sit down because the, the the plane was getting a little bit shaky. And um, there was a couple that didn't decide to do that. And they got up and the uh, sewers kept on sitting, demanding that they sit down and they didn't because they wanted to go and stand and they were going to pray. And I understand that they have this conviction to pray and that they were over there, and but he was instructed to sit down. And one of the other pastors said to me, and I'll never forget this. They act like, man, he's acting like he's like God's gift to the earth. And then we're sitting there, that's exactly who he thinks that he is. He's the chosen people. And it brings this entitlement. Well, they were felt entitled in that day. We are God's people. 
And, and, and because I'm Jewish and my daddy was Jewish and, and my granddaddy and, and all the way back to Abraham were this people that God has chosen for his own desire. They really carried with that, that this, that they were special and they were. And yet they really weren't believers. That was probably the biggest thing that I learned in my trip to Israel is that there's a lot of people that are Jewish by tradition and they follow all the traditions down to a T. I mean, the elevators on the Sabbath, you don't press the buttons. They go automatically. They go to each floor and they go, they're, they're disabled so that you don't have to press a button on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. It's an amazing how they still live by all the tenets of this. And yet there were very few that we met at least that actually had a believing and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Much less even following the Jewish kind of, you know, a relationship with God, even apart from Jesus Christ. Well, that was going on here, and Jesus calls it out. He said, look, I'm sending you first and foremost to the Jewish people, the lost sheep of Israel. And, and I want you to know that, you know, that if they don't accept you, shake the dust off your sandals and go into the next one. Now, what did he mean by that? Uh, basically, in those days, if a Jewish person went into Gentile territories, when they entered back into Israel or when they entered back into their country, they would shake the dust from the Samaritan land, from the other Gentile land, off before they came into Israel again, which is something that was part of their tradition because they just thought that very much that Israel was, you know, this, this most holy of places. And so Jesus actually says, I, I want you to do that. But this time it's not because you've been to the Samaritans. It's not because you've been to a Gentile land. I, I want you to do this as a sign that they've rejected me. Luke 9, verse 6 through 8, tells it this way. They go out there, they begin to do this, and we wonder, okay, were they successful? Well, in that parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 6 through 8, you determine if they had some success or not. Because this is what we hear. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others one of the prophets of old had risen. Now, these are all three different Gospels telling the same story. And, and here we hear that this seems like it was pretty effective, that as the disciples went out, that they actually were able to heal. They were able to teach the Gospel. They were able to do all these different things. What's the application of this for us? See, there's two things that, that we are always challenged with when we come upon the Word of God. And that is, okay, is this history, and do we just have this as historical data? And certainly so. This is a part of historical data. But what do we learn from this text? Is it just information or is there a point of application? And and I would say that there's both. That we apply things based on the the information or the truths that we learn there. And I think there's two main lessons for us as modern day Christians uh, this day if we are followers of Christ. And, And I think that they can be described in two words. Maturity and mission. The Christian life is a call to Christian maturity. There, there should be parts of our lives 
where we just see progress, guys. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden before we could only name three books of the Bible and now we can do ten books of the Bible. I'm not talking about just data information, you know. It's what we've been talking about this whole new year in Romans 12 too. It's, it's all about are we being renewed in our mind? Are we looking more and more like Christ? And wherever we look in the New Testament, we see this. Uh, some call it a race. Hey, finish the race. Some use the, the uh, illustration of that we're farmers, a soldier, an athlete. And all these different examples of the New Testament Christian, we see this call to maturity. We see things like don't be satisfied with milk anymore, but have meat. We have this repeated throughout all the New Testament that there's this call to maturity. We've said it before in here, kind of in a joking way. Do we really want a son or a daughter, as much as we love them, to still be in our living in our basement when they're 48? And I heard a no there. <laughs> no, there's a part of, okay, you know, our job is to launch you. Our job is that you would learn from us, hopefully great skills for life, and then we launch you out there. And really, this Christian life is very similar to that. That we learn of Christ, and that's why discipleship is so important. Discipleship, so we learn from one another, and that we're constantly in the Word. And we're not just talking about spiritual things, but we're actually learning spiritual truths and changing the way we think and act in response of that. Maturity. It's an expectation that God has of the New Testament believer. But then also, mission. As we learn of Christ, we become like Christ. And as we become like Christ, more and more and more we begin to, to live out that Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see the last part of that? We've been looking at that verse for a while now since people have been giving and sharing their their life stories and how God has transformed ways of their thinking. But do you see the last part of that where it says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? Would you say, parents, people who have children, that discernment is a a really big factor in success of life? (laughs) The ability to discern, the ability to take information and discern a right path. Well, that's what this verse says, that that we would learn of Jesus, that we're transformed in the renewal of our mind, that by testing and discerning, we will be able to find out more and more what is the will of God. Not as spiritual detectives with, you know, going around going, okay, this is a mystery and God is not concerned. No, that we just learn more and more of how Christ would react to situations, and then we just follow his lead. This is the constant theme of the New Testament believer. The Apostle Paul. If you know anything about the background of the Apostle Paul, he was probably the smartest one in the room. You know, you've always heard that term. When this person comes in, they're the smartest person. More than likely, that was Paul. That could really describe Paul. He was... Um, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the Jew of Jews. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, he was an accomplished guy. Well, we see that he, you know, had every letter of, of doctrine there on his wall. He was an accomplished guy. And, and before coming to know Christ, he was on the fast track to be a leader. So here this very smart, intelligent guy comes, 
And God saves them. And totally changes the foundation of his life. He goes from those, from those, uh, helping those that would try to stamp out Christianity to those now as the number one spokesman in the New Testament besides Christ himself for Christianity. But do you know what God did after his conversion, but before his ministry starts? There's this little obscure place, and we don't know a lot about it, and so we have to try to just kind of guess and try to guess accurately here. But in Galatians chapter 1, verses like 10 through 17, it talks about a time that after Paul became a Christian, after God saved him, he spent some time in Arabia, in a desert. He didn't go to seminary. He already had a lot of book knowledge. He didn't go this... And it begins to tell us that what he learned there is of Christ from the Holy Spirit. You go back and and it's really interesting. Galatians chapter 1, just read that. It's really kind of cool. But we don't know exactly all that happened. But what we do know is that he just had up to three years, as best as we can tell, with that timeline of just learning of Christ. Now, if the Apostle Paul, with all of his intellect, with all his abilities, had to learn of Christ before he could really go out and, and, and be this missionary and this uh, person that we see in the New Testament, then what a need for us to mature so that we can really clearly identify the mission that we have. See, as we learn in Christ, we the, and mature in Christ, we, we, we are more and more aware of the mission of Christ in our lives. And that's really the heart of the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended, remember what he said in Matthew chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This great mission that God has called us on is based on the maturity of learning from Christ. Basically, I think that we very much put in our commission those words that he commissioned these 12 disciples with. I give you authority. I've given you the truth. I've given you the beauty of the gospel. Go and tell, and tell in a fashion that there's discipleship going on. It's not just knocking on a door, telling somebody about Jesus, and then coming back. There's nothing wrong with that. But the intention of this Great Commission is to make disciples. Not just see how many decisions we can have made, but that we actually, it ends up being people that are following Christ in their own life. Maturity to missions, to the maturity of others, and missions. In one way, really simplistic. So two questions as we close this morning. Thinking about maturity of missions. You could ask yourself, how am I maturing in Christ? Not just in knowledge. How, how am I maturing in Christ? Do I look more like Christ? Do I think more like Christ? Do I act and respond to others more like Christ today than I did a year ago? Secondly, how am I on the mission of Christ? Not my mission, but the mission of Christ. He stated what the mission was. 
See, one of the beautiful things that we see in this calling and the sending out is that they're not having to figure out what to do. He didn't go and say, okay, look, blank check. You just kind of go out there, and I will tell you if you mess up. He's already instructed them, and then he's very specific. Go tell these people. If they respond, tell them more. If they don't respond, go into the next house. Shake the dust off your feet. Very clear. They don't have to innovate. They just have to duplicate. So how are we duplicating this mission of Christ in our lives? I promise you it can take on a thousand different forms, a thousand different ways that you and I can be on mission for Christ in the workplace, in our homes, in our church, in our community. As we work, as we recreate, as we do all these things, because as God gives us the mind of Christ, we will respond like Christ. And one way, that makes it really sound simple, doesn't it? And in one way it is, when we're guided by the Holy Spirit and filled with His Spirit. But just like that first job, just like that first apartment, I was so thrilled. And then all of a sudden I found out, especially with that first house, oh my goodness, 30 years of this? As I wrote that first check, 360 times I'm going to have to write this check? And all of a sudden it was intimidating. And I realized for us... This mission part of it is really intimidating sometimes. Well, I'll just be the servant. I don't know. Yes, please use your gifts and your abilities. But know that you're on mission for Christ. And part of it is serving, just as Jesus served. But part of it is just being, as First Peter says, ready to respond with the answer of hope that God has placed in you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, in one way we come upon this passage and because we're trying to go just verse by verse, Father, I think that we would kind of look at this as maybe one of the drier parts. There's not a little girl coming back to life. There's not a somebody who's demon-possessed that is getting freedom from that demonic spirit. Father, in a way, we would come upon this and it seems a little bit more technical than it does just kind of this big explosive story. And yet, Father, I pray that we would understand, that we would receive this, Father, that we would get this. That your whole mission for us, Father, is very clear, and that is to go and tell others. To tell them what we have learned of you and how, Father, you have matured us. Not just facts and data, but, Father, how you have transformed our lives. How we are no longer our own. But Father, now you're living in us. So Father, help us never to uh, underestimate the weight of this call. But Father, help us to know not to be intimidated by the weight of this call. Because you have given us authority. You have supplied us with your spirit. You have sent us, Father. Not to be innovators and try to come up with some plan on our own. But Father, simply to duplicate what you've already done. Help us even this week, Father, to grow in maturity, to identify the mission that you've called us to. We love you and we thank you as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online 
at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.